sometimes you speak to vets and vet nurses who feel alone that they're the only one that goes to bed worrying about some of the stuff that they see, but you're not. And if it was to signal or spark a sense of community and possibility that we are all leaders, that society does want to hear from vets and vet nurses on these things and to be challenged and informed, then that'd be a fantastic outcome for me because I love meeting vets and vet nurses and, and talking to them about that very topic. And if they go on and then join BVA, BVNA committees, write for their local newsletter, and, you know, just rekindle some advocacy, then that would be fantastic from a professional perspective. Welcome to the Vet Times podcast. In this episode, we're joined once again by Sean Wensley, ahead of the release of his debut book. Titled Through a Vet's Eyes, How We Can All Choose a Better Life for Animals, the book explores our relationship with animals, how we treat them, how we get it wrong, and what we can do to fix it. Ahead of its release on the 28th of April, we've invited Sean back to the Vet Times podcast to give us a synopsis of the book and to discuss the impact he hopes it will have on our animal welfare footprint in the years to come. Hello, Sean. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Good. Exciting few weeks ahead of you with your book launch. Yeah, three weeks today, which uh, seems slightly surreal. And I guess there's also a surreal element to the fact of writing it alone for a long time and then the, the possibility of someone in the world reading it and confronting that reality. Talk us through what the book is about. It's obviously called Through a Vet's Eyes, How We Can All Choose a Better Life for Animals. Just give us a general synopsis of the book. The first thing to say is it's aimed at a non-specialist audience. So I've got the the general public in mind, um, informed, concerned citizens, or certainly concerned, and hopefully we can help increase information. Um, I think it will... I hope also be of interest to, to vets and vet nurses, veterinary professionals, veterinary teams, because I'm using it as a platform to communicate veterinary policy and, and veterinary experience, hence the, the title through a vet's eyes. So it brings the veterinary professions hopefully into you know front and centre of the, the important societal debate and discussion about animal welfare. And it I suppose it it seeks to do two things. One is raise awareness of some of the animal welfare problems that are pervasive through society and back that information and awareness raising with science and and the evidence base as we understand it, which of course is evolving all the time, but it reflects what we know at at this, this point in time. And then importantly, it couples that with a sense of what we can do about it. It, it, it it's, it's action focused you know so it's not simply looking to list lots of problems and say that we've got a lot of work to do um i think there is a sense of scale of, of, of need and urgency but i hope it has a, a, a sufficient practical uh, sufficiently practical focus to really help all of us do do something and particularly as i say informed concerned citizens who who increasingly want to do more and want to see more being done. And it covers the entire animal spectrum, so to speak, as well, doesn't it? From farm animals, where obviously there are numerous questions asked throughout society worldwide, but also kind of the pet ownership level, particularly a a note from the press statements that have been shared to promote the book about the urbanisation of the world, essentially. So it covers everything, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it covers several different areas of, of animal use by humans. Um, so it covers those animals that we farm for, for food principally, um, companion animals, animals used in sports, and also wild animals impacted by human activities. So they're not clearly all of the ways that we use animals in society, but they're a, a, a good spread of them. Um, I think because they're interesting and important areas, um, they are areas of, of public debate and discussion. People are now scrutinizing the, the quality of animals' lives in those, in those settings, um, rightly. And the whole thing is set in the context of the natural world. So my personal entry into the world of animals, into the world of, of veterinary science and veterinary medicine has been through the lens of the natural world, um, you know, I think childhood naturalist onwards. And it tries to set then some of the ethical questions in the broader context of us as humans and how we do relate to the rest of the natural world and how increasingly we ought to relate to the rest of the natural world. So the, the final chapter, the closing chapters, tries to bring all of that together into something of a synthesis, thinking about concepts like one health, one welfare, sustainable development, um, humane, sustainable animal agriculture, some of those sort of big picture contextual um, considerations. But I hope that whilst that might sound quite heavy, uh, we reach it through the book quite naturally because, you know, I try to lighten some of the content with time spent in nature. So hopefully readers will enjoy seeing starling murmurations or uh, geese leaving their, their, their roosts at sunset, uh, at, well, dawn and returning at sunset and, and so on. I've got a picture of the swans just as they fly off from the wash near to where I live. Now, a few months ago, we discussed in another podcast episode, the role of the BVA's animal welfare strategy, which came into place during your time as BVA president six or seven years ago now. Did this feel to you like a natural progression for yourself to kind of explore these welfare strategies from your perspective? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the, the idea and desire to write about some of these things in a book actually predated my time at, at BVA. So okay. it's been, a, been a, a long gestation. But then the work that we were able to do at BVA um, not least through BVA's animal welfare strategy and also I think the, the Vet Futures project, um, you know, developed my own thinking and um, I think some of the professions thinking around these issues, which I've then post BVA been able to reflect in the book. So my time at BVA has updated um, and expanded my own thoughts and, and views um, and for the better, I think, not least through having contact with increasing contact with species specialist colleagues um, who feed into uh, BVA's policies, of course. Um, but yeah, the natural progression has been to use the book then as a platform, a, a communication channel for lots of the, the policies that we worked on and agreed through debate and consensus building. So where veterinary policy exists on some of the animal welfare problems that, that I've included, I think I can hand on heart say I've meticulously and faithfully reflected them. I don't seek to stray from those positions. I just simply want to help get them out to the world. Um, and I hope that will help colleagues who are working in the areas that 
um, that, that we talk about. But the other thing, of course, with BVA is the work they do is always so topical and so live and so relevant. So when it's things like making sure uh, sentience is included in updated UK animal welfare legislation, um, when it's looking at things like funding for animal welfare in um, future agricultural policy, whether we can protect our UK farm animal welfare standards um, in, through the, the trade deals that are being struck post-Brexit, all of those really, really important things are also then captured and are sort of front and centre in some of the discussion in the book because I want the general public to engage with those issues in the same way that the BVA and, and its members do. We certainly hope they will because it's uh, it's been an increasing talking point for several years, hasn't it? But then additionally, we've got the pandemic on top of that as well. And from a domestic point of view, the growth of the ownership and breeding issues, so to speak, and how that brings it together. Has the pandemic accelerated the need for something like this, do you think? I think so. Um, I think the pandemic had that transformational effect didn't it so it's it really first of all it grounded people through lockdowns and we saw that uptick in awareness of and appreciation for our local environment people there are are multiple anecdotal and other reports of people saying they sort of heard and appreciated birdsong in ways that they hadn't previously noticed flowers coming out you know Frogspawn and, and so on. So there was that kind of refocusing of, again, our place in the natural world and how important the natural world is to us and to our, our psychological well-being, not least. Then there was the transformational element in terms of some of the things that just happened very quickly and how society changed very, very quickly. I mean, of course, prompted by something that we wish hadn't occurred. But in the face of, of that challenge, we transform very quickly. And I think a lot of people would say we need to transform the ways that we relate, relate to, to the natural world. And we need to transform our global food system, for example, and make sure that it's consistent with the well-being of, of animals' lives and environmental stewardship and, and so on. That Those things need to happen with a bit more urgency. And the pandemic showed us that we can, as a a species um, globally just turn on a pinhead and, and do that if we put our minds to it. And I think, as I say, thinking about how our quality of life interrelates with the quality of lives of other sentient animals and through those One Health and One Welfare lenses, that too has risen up the agenda um, in light of the pandemic, um, both to prepare us and help prevent future pandemics, but also to refocus the importance of halting biodiversity loss. Um, and then the others, you know, making sure we protect antimicrobials and, and tackle climate change meaningfully. So yeah, I think it's reminded us of our vulnerability as a species and refocused our efforts on why all of these issues are so important. There's a statistic I'd never heard before, and I'll read what it says on the press release. Reported surveys have suggested that one in four UK adults don't know that bacon comes from pigs. That's quite an alarming statement. Is that something that you discovered during preparing your book? Or has that been known within sectors for a while and actually needs to be kind of emphasised front and centre? It reads almost like a lead line into the book as for the explanation as to why this needs to happen. Yeah, so... 
Earlier in our conversation, I used the phrase informed concerned citizens, and that was deliberate because I could have said informed concerned consumers. And there's been a bit of a move um, towards something called food citizenship, which you may have come across, yeah. which is to try and think of us not just as passive consumers who walk into supermarkets and shops and take products, including animal-derived products, meat and dairy off the shelves and simply consume, but to think of more of what that means to us as, as citizens. And I mean, we are moral agents uh, fundamentally as, as humans and trying to make the connection between taking that product, handing money over for it, which essentially, whether we think about it or not, says, I'm absolutely content with the way that this has been produced. I'm going to fund you with my own money to continue. You know, there's, there's that, I think that reconnection is, is to be made. Now, obviously, as I talk about in the book, um, and, and not least at the present time, there are issues of accessibility and affordability to different parts of society, and that absolutely mustn't be ignored. But equally, it's perhaps a bit lazy or passive to simply say, you know, people buy these things, they must be happy with it. Um, if, if, if they weren't, they wouldn't continue to, to buy it. You know, I think that conceals a certain amount of ignorance. Uh, a lot of consumers don't know about some of the, um, the problems that animals face and indeed how those can then translate to farmer and producer well-being as well. So this isn't solely focused on animals, even though they are my principal focus. Um, but to see that, that story behind the packet on the shelf, we can hopefully engage more. And I think this is a direction to travel anyway, but to help re-engage. So the same, thinking about the quality of the animals' lives, thinking about the quality of the, the producers' lives and the communities that they, that they live in, and just help to raise, raise the bar uh, in all directions as part of the jigsaw puzzle, as I've already said, of tackling climate change and addressing serious biodiversity loss. But unless we keep having that conversation, keep having the issues put in front of us, hopefully keep being given tools that help us think about it, help us understand those topics, which is what I would love to contribute to through this book, um, then the passive narrative, I think, will, will prevail and we'll keep doing what we've always done. From your perspective as the author of the book, what do you hope someone who reads it takes away a few years down the line and how it essentially influences the way they live and make their choices going forwards? The book talks about an animal welfare footprint as a concept. So I hope principally it helps us think about our animal welfare footprint. So that is the, the choices that we make, whether it's a, a supermarket or which ballot box we put our tick in. Um, or even just the, the, the things that we choose to talk to local decision makers about. So it's, it's action focused and it, it wants us to think about our animal welfare footprint and help us reduce it. Um, I think in terms of our relationships with animals, as sentience becomes better understood, that animals do have thoughts and feelings that are morally relevant, we can, I would like to think as a swipe, get rid of some of the worst things that we do to animals really eradicate some of the, the worst practices and then the rest continue to evolve so that we're always striving for them to have a good life they're not just existing under human stewardship animals are actually being rewarded and, and thriving yeah so we, we strive towards that 
So I'd like to help readers understand their animal welfare footprint, think about their animal welfare footprints and, and have some ideas of how they might reduce it. Um, underpinning that, there has been a perennial issue of people belittling or sidelining concern for animals as anthropomorphic attribution of human feelings to animals, uh, you know, misplaced uh, sentimentality and so on. Because I've brought in a, a good chunk of animal welfare science to support the, the claims that I've, I've made um, and to help people understand why the vet depression has certain policies on certain issues. If I had one modest aim, it would be that that accusation of anthropomorphism by those who are essentially seeking to defend the status quo can never legitimately be applied again. It should be really dismissed for the, the falsehood that it conveys. And hopefully it will bring the profession and the public closer together in this battle as well. Because if there's one thing, and again, I know I'm going back to the pandemic, but one thing you hear quite often is how some of the measures have created challenges in that rapport between the vet and the client. Hopefully it will kind of bring everyone together on the same page. Yeah, I mean, the, the opening page of the book, actually, I think it's the one of the very first pages before we kick off proper, um, includes some extracts from veterinary policy and veterinary strategy. So there's a, an extract from our, our Royal College declaration, reminding us of our principal focus on the welfare, health and welfare of animals under our care. Then there's a statement about the importance of vets not only, and vet nurses not only focusing on the welfare of animals under our care, but that we need to take a broader societal view and look to provide some leadership and thought leadership and, and so on more widely. Um, and that will include challenging the status quo of animal use. Um, and then there's another little excerpt from uh, the World Veterinary Association's policy on the role of veterinarians in animal welfare, which is about not only sort of halting the, the worst, but seeking to promote positive animal feelings as well. But all of that ties in, uh, yes, to our, our profession's dual responsibility to both look after the animals in the situations that they find themselves, but then try to alter and shape and influence society so that so that they're not necessarily similarly affected in the future, that they're treated better in the future. And there's a fine line, I think, as we probably did speak about last time, in, in taking that leadership position and saying that we, we do have a very legitimate role, um, not least because happily it seems we are trusted and people, society values what vets and vet nurses have to say about uh, animals and animal welfare. So we'll speak up and we'll speak out and we'll challenge, but equal, at the same time, we don't want to disenfranchise everybody. There has to be just the way of doing that that's respectful, that seeks to bring people with us, help them understand the world from our perspective. We're not looking to slam those who keep animals in certain ways because this is about an evolution of understanding of animals' experiences of the world and how we then modify our caregiving practices in light of that knowledge. You know, it's not a blame message. And I hope that I've managed to strike that tone, that sort of measured yet passionate tone in the way I've written the book. But, but that's deliberate because we want to keep people, we, we do want to challenge and to provoke, but we don't want to disenfranchise people that, uh, that we need to continue working with. It's a very important approach. What have you learned about both yourself while writing the book, but also about the issue that you kind of didn't expect 
when you started out on this journey? I think at times what I learned about myself is how much some of these issues affect you when you think about them. Um, I talk about my time training as a vet student and some of the things that you did uh, then. And, you know, I think there can be an issue there that you've successfully competed to get on the veterinary course at a young age and it's been a, a long-held goal and you sort of feel very lucky and fortunate to have the place and to be doing what you're doing. But then you can view some of the practices that you're asked to assist with in a very functional way and you're not necessarily so this could be you know this could be tail docking animals without anesthetic or analgesia and similar practices you don't necessarily then have space or inclination to reflect and think well why why did i just do that and why was i asked to do that and that would just be one example so when you sit down with this with the purpose of reflecting um, or continuing to reflect on discussions that happen during formation of BVA or FBA policy, you can actually, things come to the surface, you know, emotional responses to having done those things that I think can quite easily be, be buried. I think at vet, schools, at, at vet school, it can be buried because you, you're just there to learn and tick boxes and yeah. demonstrate competence. And it can be buried later uh, because in the policy forming spheres, you're there to create policy. You know, you're not there to necessarily share the, the emotional burden of, of some of the things that you've done in your life. So I think that was that was quite interesting. That that that, that and hopefully healthy to confront your emotions on some of these things, but then nevertheless try to present that in a, in a way that remains constructive and not not diverted from the emotion you know you have to put get the professional hat back on um but we're all realizing aren't we that if you if you if you consider that your professional hat doesn't involve recognizing emotions that's deeply unhealthy yeah very much so it's it's a topic that's front and center as well isn't it emotional well-being and striking that balance i half suspected that would be where you come from almost kind of challenging those emotions and it will also reflect a lot of, of veterinary colleagues and how they also approach it. I wonder if one of them listening to you then is, is almost like engaging with the issue and reflecting and actually deep down hoping that the vets and VNs who read the book, they do that reflection and understand what it means to them. Yeah, I mean, that would be a fantastic outcome for me because in the same vein, yeah, in our daily veterinary, particularly our daily practicing clinical lives you really can just feel as though you're being swept along and there are certain things being presented to you that you know are ethically problematic but tomorrow's another day you've had a list as long as your arm you go home you stuff some tea down and you get on with it um and that's not through any sort of malice or lack of moral fiber it's because you're, you're busy and you're probably exhausted so i hope that through my reflecting some of the veterinary positions that have been taken and some of the ways that BVA and other organisations have stood up in recent years and made assertions and helped influence policy and started to evolve things for the better, that, that some veterinary readers will think, yeah, that's, that's me, that's my flag flying. And, and I do feel proud of that, that you can rekindle a sense of pride 
and hopefully rekindle a sense of possibility that you're not alone. Sometimes you speak to vets and vet nurses who feel alone, that they're the only one that goes to bed worrying about some of the stuff that they see, but you're not. And if it was to just signal or spark a sense of community and possibility um, that we're all that we are all leaders that society does want to hear from vets and vet nurses on these things and to be challenged and informed then again that'd be a, a fantastic outcome for me um, because not least I, I love meeting vets and vet nurses and, and talking to them about that very uh, topic and if they go on and then join BVA, BVNA committees write for their local newsletter and you know just rekindle some advocacy then that would be that'd be fantastic from a professional perspective get to events as well it feels like the whole discussion of 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 welfare and how we treat animals that's essentially it's a front and center topic of all these congresses isn't it and the face-to-face conversation is definitely a valuable one yeah for sure and i think i like i lay out pretty early in the book that it doesn't speak to give all the answers i mean for ethical dilemmas and ethical issues there is no answer really but there can be there can be a veterinary position there can be a way that we would like to see the world to go and if it helps as i say sort of spark those sorts of conversations maybe help people think particularly i I guess going back to the very start where we talked about there being different areas of animal use if you're working in a particular part of the profession i think it can be quite interesting to see how that issue plays out in other parts of animal using society and think oh that's interesting they've tackled it that way and they you know we're not you're not alone so there can be a, a benefit in comparing and contrasting between dairy cattle and brachycephalic dogs for example you know so the issues of selective breeding for example you know yeah uh, cross-cutting the, uh, that's reflections again like that. isn't it yeah coming back to coming back to reflections and yeah. the phrase is reflective learning i think isn't it if i remember correctly yeah and outcomes-based learning as well, I suppose, comes into that as well. And that's how I, I mean, that's another part of the prompt for including the nature writing and some of the time spent in nature, because that's how I, how I personally would use the natural world. It's a great place to go to sort of restore yourself, but also to have space to think and wander down a path when you've got skylarks singing and think, yeah, so why was I just cutting all those lambs' tails off and causing what we know to be you know known pain and other different ways of doing that and so you know that that is part of the the way that the the nature aspect is is woven in all walks of society are going through this now and the thing that's just dawned on me you saying about lamb's tails is my wife's reaction to when we watch clarkson's farm particularly the slaughtering of the lambs episode and her approach to eating lamb did change quite markedly after watching that and she definitely became more aware shall we say of what she was eating where she was buying it from and that kind of thing and this book definitely will go some way towards helping people with that understanding i hope so so like a tv program like that there's just the the sort of awareness raising element the issue the problem is is there and you're confronted with it and you can read about it uh, without it being too shocking or exaggerated, you know. Yeah. And then some of, as say, some of the underpinning evidence and some of the reasons and explanations for why that's done currently, but doesn't necessarily always have to be done. We could evolve to, to different and better ways of doing things. 
So yeah, hopefully for that, exactly. Someone like your wife, whose interest has been sparked, I would like to think if she took a book like mine off the shelf, she could find out a bit more. That's what I was going to say. It's almost the deeper delve into that situation, isn't it? Yeah. Have you caught the writing bug? Are we going to get more books? <laughs> I think, as I would say to others, it depends how deafening the sound of blowing tumbleweed really is after this one. So uh, yeah, I'll not run before I can walk, but... I love I, I, I love the process. I do love writing. Um, having gone through for the first time the process with the publisher as well, I mean, that's been really amazing to sort of see how a book comes to life and to be part of a, a close-knit team. That's been fascinating. So, yeah, let's see how things pan out. Excellent. Now, it's published through Octopus Books and it's out on the 28th of April. It's available where? Is it from all good booksellers? <laughs> I mean, most... <laughs> Um, yeah, there is a link tree page which has all the different sellers on, but it's all the usual, you know, your uh, Amazon Book Depository, WH Smith, Waterstones, and, and others. So, yeah, it's pretty widely available. All good booksellers and online. Excellent. Well, good luck with the launch. Thanks so much. We look forward to hearing any feedback that either you get and wish to share or that we get from this podcast. So good luck and obviously congratulations as well. Thanks so much, Tom. That's really kind of you. Cheers. Thank you for your interest and time. Tom, can I just get the doorbell? Sorry? Which is just rung. The doorbell, yeah, the doorbell. go for it. Do you know, I think it's the I think it's the book. I think it's the Oh box fantastic. Of book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's all this beats sitting in a house on my own. Here we go. The box. <laughs> Are you alright for time, Tom? I'm absolutely fine oh, for right, time. Right, right. I'm still recording. If this is the box of books, this is going in somewhere. There it is. The first copy of the book. Pass off the press. There we go. It's real now. Is this the first copy you've seen? Yes. <laughs> this is the first copy you've seen. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I would have been sitting here on my own time if we hadn't been doing this, so it's nice to share it with you. It's starting to hit home, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, amazing. Um, it's got some... Well, there you go, that's it. <laughs> there is your book. Copy number one. The end of a journey. Start of another one, I'm sure. But... <laughs> Very much so, a start of a new one. And pride of place on the bookshelf. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of people to thank. Fire away. You're more than welcome to. I'm still <laughs> recording, so I didn't press stop. I was about to press stop when you said I'm going to go and get the doorbell. I think it's the books. Right. So, uh, um, well, I, I'm not going to do an Oscars, but I'll tell you what, on the um, front page, there's a forward by Miranda Kristofnikov, who's the current president of the RSPB. Um, and she's been a great support over uh, the years and a good friend. Um, so it was really, really kind of her to, to write some words at the start to introduce the book um, and, and be so open with her support of it. So all the reviews up to now, have they basically been people reading transcripts? They've read proofs, yeah. Proofs? Yeah. Um, so uh, Justine Shotton, BBA president, had kindly written a few words. We've got those on the back, or some of them on the back. And a couple of other um, authors, Jay Griffiths and Charles Foster, 
got quotes on the book as well, and then the others are all on the on the inside. But it was really good of Justine at BBA to read it for me and make some kind comments ahead of it being published. It meant a lot to me. Excellent. Oh, we've timed this so well. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. Well, as you say, it's the, it's the achievement of one goal or the reaching of one horizon, but it's just the start now of the way it wends through the world. And some people might love it, some might hate it. And hopefully in between the two, there'll be plenty of discussion and reflection, as we've said. So can't ask for more than that, really. Fantastic. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. Needs a champagne to celebrate, Sean. Well done.